You're listening to At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest themes in fixed income, currency, and commodity markets today. I'm your host, Phoebe White, head of U.S. Inflation Strategy at J.P. Morgan. And today I'm joined by Jay Barry and Srini Ramaswamy, our co-heads of U.S. rate strategy, as well as Mike Faroli, our chief U.S. economist, to talk about what a debt ceiling resolution means for markets. As of last night, the bill to suspend the debt ceiling until 2025 has now passed both the House and Senate. It will soon be signed into law, and we can finally stop worrying about risks of a technical default. But we may now have some new issues to deal with as we think about the surge in T-bill supply and the potential drain in bank reserves. So Jay, help us set the stage here. As of yesterday, Treasury's cash balance is below 50 billion. Where does Treasury need to get that cash balance to? How quickly will it need to do that? And what does that mean for Treasury issuance in coming months? Yeah, sure, Phoebe. So back in 2015, Treasury instituted its cash balance policy. It recognized it had um, an operating risk where if it lost access to capital markets for more than a few days, it may not have cash on hand to pay its bills. So the current sort of operating framework means that it likes to hold enough cash to withstand that loss of access to capital markets for about five days, which given the size of the treasury market and the distribution of maturities, it's something like 600 to 650 billion right now. So that would um, imply that the treasury would need to increase its cash balance by something like 550 billion. Um, if we look back to the May refunding and treasury's financing estimates, certainly it indicated that it thought that the debt ceiling deal would have been done sooner, but was still was projecting a, a cash balance of about $600 billion at the end of the third quarter. So we use that to inform the view that it'll use the next four months or so to get the cash balance back to a level that's in line with its own operating sort of framework. Um, and, and if it does that, it necessarily means that um, Treasury bill issuance is going to surge over the coming months to fund that. And that shouldn't be a surprise because in each of these debt ceiling episodes that we've had, um, as the Treasury seeks to replenish its TGA back to more normalized levels, it's increased T-bill issuance to sort of fund that. So um, against that backdrop, we think that um, we're looking for a grand total of about um, $1.4 trillion in, in T-bill issuance on a net basis over the course of the year. Um, but we think about $850 billion is going to come between now and the end of September. And how do we get to that number? Of course, it's backing it out from from the TGA estimate, but we're also using, you know, our own sort of framework to sort of um, frame this view. And we noticed that um, at the May refunding, when the Treasury pinged its dealer community about expectations about how many bills it could issue without sort of really impacting valuations, the median response was it could issue about 600 billion of bills over a three-month period without having that adverse impact, with the upside being somewhere closer to a trillion. So our 850 billion over the course of the next four months is kind of in line with that. Moreover, we used um, the dealer auction size perspectives to sort of guide our view as well. And we guided um, benchmark T-bill auction sizes to sort of the, the upper end of the, the range that was indicated by dealers for the end of fiscal year 23. So if we assume, and we've already seen this morning that Treasury has announced some cash management bills for next week to start this replenishment activity, that it can get there without adversely impacting valuations by getting T-bill auction sizes across benchmark tenors to their max sizes in coming weeks, and then holding them there through the summer such that the TGA is replenished back to that 600 billion level by the end of September. So it sounds like, you know, you think this is sort of going to be carefully managed. We won't get, you know, big cheapening and T-bills. How are you thinking about valuations 
I mean, it's still a pretty big number, 850 billion in less than four months. Um, just and kind of contextually, have we seen that kind of supply over such a short period in the past? Yes. Yeah, so for context, we've seen this sort of net issuance perhaps three times over the last 15 years. The, the, the largest example um, was around the spring of 2020 when there was about two and a half trillion in net T-bill issuance over a three-month span as the Treasury quickly funded the, the COVID um, relief um, around March, April, May of 2020. We've also seen around the, um, the GFC that T-bill issuance surged somewhere in the vicinity of $850 billion over a three-month period then. Um, and then even more recently, not quite the same scale, but earlier this year, from late December through the early part of March, there was over $500 billion in net issuance over a three-month period. So we've seen these sorts of surges before. They are somewhat unusual, but not completely out of order. But what we've noticed is that T-bill valuations have actually already cheapened, right? It's pretty notable that three-month T-bills relative to SOFR OAS have been trending cheaper in recent months. But we think it's unlikely that they should cheapen materially further. One, because I think of the guidance that Treasury has collated from its dealer community. But two, because on an empirical basis, it's hard to actually see that um, increases in issuance actually impact valuation significantly. So in the piece we published earlier this week, we showed a chart where we looked at monthly changes in T-bill issuance versus monthly changes in T-bill OIS spreads. And it basically shows that there's very sort of little correlation between the two. So I think when we couple the dealer community guidance with the empirical evidence we've seen over the last 10 to 20 years against the backdrop of bills that have already cheapened, and it seems like even though this flood of supply is about to, to begin next week and be, on, be there on an ongoing basis for the next three to four months, that it shouldn't have a major impact to cheapen bill valuation significantly further from where we are right now. Okay, so Srini, let's turn to you and kind of talk about the demand side and, and who might be buying these bills. Um, and also in terms of how that fits into your thinking on the Fed's balance sheet. I mean, clearly the TGA is a liability on the balance sheet. And as that rises, we'll need to see that offset in other liability accounts. How are you thinking about whether these funds come out of reserves or RRP? Uh, that's right, Phoebe. Um, so the TGA is clearly one of the three call it large and uh, volatile liabilities on the Fed's balance sheet. Um, and if the TGA grows by, you know, call it 550-ish billion between now and September, uh, that's also a period, by the way, where the Fed's balance sheet is likely to shrink, um, you know, perhaps by another 300 billion over that period. So that means the other major liabilities, the RRP and reserves, have to decline by, in total, by something like 850 billion. Um, the the question is really, you know, so which one declines more relative to the other? Um, and I think empirical evidence is pretty convincing on this score. Um, we know from historical data that the, uh, you know, declines in, uh, or, or I should say change in reserves is sort of very well correlated to change in TGA, which means the rise in the TGA is likely to be accompanied by sort of a significant uh, decline in reserves. Uh, the beta there is roughly about 0.8 uh, or minus 0.8, I should say, uh, and fairly stable, which means I think it paints a picture of, um, you know, the TGA is likely to grow in, in coming months um, and reserves, you know, will fall, you know, materially from their current 3.2-ish trillion level. Uh, and I think what this means, you know, anecdotally or, or, or when we think about who buys bills, et cetera, uh, we tend to focus on money market funds uh, because that's sort of the visible uh, buyer base, if you will. Um, 
but the base of buyers for T-bills are likely, you know, a lot more diffuse across the financial system. It includes everybody from, of course, like, you know, corporations and corporate treasurers to, uh, to individuals, to, uh, to institutions managing their cash balances, you know, whether it's in a mutual fund or someplace else or whatever it is. So I think the universe of buyers for bills is like fairly dispersed across the financial system, which means you tend to see um, the, the major or the predominant reallocation is really from bank deposits to, uh, to bills on the investor side. And hence the manifestation or the Fed's balance sheet, which is reserves are likely to go down versus, uh, versus uh, you know, TGA going up. The impact on RRPs will probably be, you know, fairly modest. It might go down a bit, but fairly modest. Understood. Okay, so Mike, under these assumptions, right, we have TGA rising by about 550 billion to 600 billion by the end of September, about 80% of that coming out of reserves on top of that, the balance sheet is shrinking. So if we get down to 2.6 trillion in reserves by the end of September, that's, you know, 600 billion, call it lower than where we are now. How close are we going to get to that lowest comfortable level of reserves? Well, the short answer is nobody knows for sure. Uh, one thing we do know is that in 2019, when we thought we were at that lowest comfortable level, reserves were around 8% of GDP. Uh, so the New York Fed and their projections has been using that as a uh, sort of a benchmark or a guide or a guess, I guess, to what the lowest comfortable level of reserves might be. That would translate to about 2.1 trillion uh, today. So even under that assumption, 2.6 is kind of within um, you know, shelling distance of that uh, estimate. Uh, and I would add that there are reasons to suspect that that number uh, is probably biased upward from the 2.1 trillion, which is to say, uh, you know, given the recent banking crisis, there may be increased uh, attractiveness of uh, holding reserves. So uh, we suspect 2.6 trillion may still be above the lowest comfortable level of reserves, which again is a Unobservable, uh, an unobservable number that no one really knows until you get there. But, uh, but certainly it would be within the range of possibility of what, uh, of what could be the lowest comfortable level of reserves. Okay, so Shrini, um, clearly a lot of uncertainty around where that level is. How concerned do you think we should be with this quick decline in reserves that we could see an episode like September 2019 where we get a spike in repo rates? Yeah, I think the chances of that are, you know, fairly low. Um, and the, the, the reason for that really traces back to the fact that we have a fairly large RRP balance. Um, long story short, back then we did not have a large RRP. I think we had a fairly de minimis. Uh, the program existed, but it was extremely, uh, you know, extremely small in September 2019. Uh, and right now, the reason that helps, the, the large RRP balance helps is because should there be a spike in repo rates or, or you know, if you start to see funding pressures creep up and, and repo rates start reflecting that and going higher, well, there is a large um, sort of pool of money that's currently in the RRP program that will, you know, for the right, you know, for, for a fairly uh, modest incentive, shall we say, um, reallocate into, into repo transactions. Um, and therefore, I think, the markets have a natural sort of way to cure this, um, you know, to, to cure any potential rise in repo rates. So I think that's that's um, a bit of a, you know, like a market-based mechanism without the Fed needing to do anything uh, to fix any, uh, you know, if you start to see 
repo rates going up or, or spiking higher, I think the markets will naturally cure that. Uh, there is some risk to this view, which is operational in nature. And then there is a question of, you know, can, you know, sort of dealer balance sheets, uh, dealers quickly sort of uh, intermediate, you know, these repo transactions. But by and large, I think the expectation is that markets will be able to handle, you know, spikes in repo rates. So how does that feed into your sort of monthly projections for our reserves versus RRP? Um, you know, do we get a slowing in the decline of reserves? Do we start to see more coming out of RRP as we move through the year? Uh, that's exactly right. So I think what we have baked into the forecast um, is, is really that, you know, reserves uh, decline a lot faster initially. And then as we get closer to that 2.56 trillion level where reserves, um, you know, could, could be near sort of a low comfortable level. Uh, we think the natural mechanisms in the market will be, you know, a combination of, you know, sort of banks, um, banks seeking to maintain reserves, you know, perhaps by, you know, uh, competing for deposits um, and or these sorts of mechanisms that sort of redirect money from RRP into, uh, into reserves will cause reserves to become stickier at that point and RRPs will start to decline faster if QT continues. So that's exactly what we have in the forecast. Reserves tend to become much stickier. Uh, we, we think reserves will become stickier around the two and a half trillion mark and RRP balances will start to fa fall at a higher uh, beta with respect to you know, the, the, the shrinking of the Fed's balance sheet. Okay, so this sounds like a, a pretty smooth process, um, but as you mentioned, you know, we may not see an immediate reallocation of cash out of RRP. So Mike, turning back to you, if this doesn't occur right away to, to sort of cure reserve scarcity, how do you think the Fed would respond to that? Um, so once again, I think we don't know in part because the Fed hasn't really laid out their plans for the long run future of the reverse repo facility. I think one thing to say is if we do reach a position of reserve scarcity, the Fed will uh, not be uh, hesitant uh, to supply more reserves to the banking system through either temporary or permanent open market operations. So I think that we know. Uh, what we don't know is whether they will take measures to more actively reduce the size of the reverse repo facility, thereby freeing up more reserves for the banking system. In those uh, long run projections that I mentioned earlier, the Fed sees uh, the reverse repo facility kind of organically coming down uh, to zero in the long run. Uh, however, that was, you know, that that's been their projection for quite some time now, and it just hasn't happened. So, if it continues to cease to happen, I think that becomes interesting whether they would take more active steps to uh, reduce uh, the, the the size and usage of the reverse repo facility. But as I, you know, kind of led off with, they haven't really given us a clear sense of what the long run status of that facility is or should be. So, right now, there's some speculation they could widen. The uh, reverse repo IORB spread or, or limit um, reduce counterparty caps. But at the same time, in their most recent remarks and remarks from Chair Powell at the uh, latest press conference, they don't seem too bothered by having a very large reverse re repo facility, at least for now. So, uh, so I think it's safe to say the Fed will inject reserves as time comes. It's harder to say what exactly is the long run fate of the. the Repo facility. Srini, just curious if you have anything to add to that. I mean, do you see any challenges in trying to actively throttle usage of the RRP? 
So I think um, in the near term, that might be a little harder because there is still sort of the external migration from, from deposits into, uh, in, into money markets and then through the money markets into, into RRP. Um, and that seems to be fairly uh, rate, uh, rate insensitive. You know, our money market strategists, um, you know, I guess a, a few weeks back, uh, maybe a month back, uh, wrote about how the institutional migration has been really not about rates, and it's really um, most of it is all you know post um, the the regional banking uh, stresses that we've seen in recent months. Um, so I think what that means is um, rate-based mechanisms uh, to throttle or, or curtail the growth of the RRP might be less successful, and it might create what what we call the leaky floor problem. Right, it might cause short rates to fall through where the Fed wants it to be. Uh, so that might be a little harder to do in the short run. In the medium term, I think um, this will be an area for the, for the Fed to sort of keep in mind and, and, and focus on. Got it. Okay, so before we close, Trini, I also just wanted to ask you, how do you see these dynamics affecting markets um, in terms of the sort of reacceleration of deposit outflows and the impact on banks? And, and what are the implications for swap spreads? Yeah, there's at least, uh, you know, I, I guess there's a short run angle to this and then, um, you know, a much more longer term uh, impact. Uh, let's begin with the short run. I think in the short run, if we are right about RRP balances being relatively stable and not too impacted uh, by, by the growth in the TGA, then I think, you know, front end swap spreads uh, should widen uh, considerably. Um, the cheapening in two year swap spreads, for instance, is to a considerable degree, sort of, uh, you know, like it, it's been dragged narrower because of, you know, T-bills and in the very, very front end of the treasury curve uh, cheapening. Um, it is also pretty positively correlated to RRP uh, balances. Um, and, 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 and that's in turn because RRP seems to act as shadow repo market supply, right? It's, it's sort of a pool of money that's available to uh, migrate into the repo markets, uh, and that seems to act as if uh, as as a it, it, it exerts sort of a narrowing bias on repo rates, and therefore uh, a widening bias on swap spreads. As you know, two-year swap spreads price in sort of you know the carry improved carry from lower repo rates. So, long story short, uh, stable repo uh, stable RRP balances should help. Um, two-year swap spreads recover to wider and what we think of as you know, closer to fair value levels. Um, further out the curve, I think the, um, it's really a story about what's happening with deposits and the migration. Um, so reserves going down on the Fed's balance sheet means um, you know, deposit balances going down on bank balance sheets. Um, and that just adds to everything else that's going on. There is also this external migration from deposits into money market funds that we talked about. And all of this collectively paints a picture of sort of weaker bank ALM demand for, for sort of intermediate duration assets, um, you know, and therefore sort of, uh, you know, we think of it as a steady narrowing pressure on swap spreads in, in, in the belly of the curve uh, that is likely to persist for some time. Uh, in the even longer term, I think um, we are sort of relearning where deposit betas might be. You know, we've been, you know, sort of um, for for such a long time, we've mostly experienced very, very low rate regimes. And I think uh, we, meaning, you know, sort of the banking system as a whole is sort of, um, you know, recalibrating expectations for deposit rates, um, you know, overall. And to the extent that 
we conclude, we meaning again as a system, conclude that deposit betas trend a little higher, uh, that just means um, less duration demand for uh, for securities and or you know I, I should say duration overall on bank balance sheets um, that is likely to weigh on the markets and it's likely to weigh on the securities markets first because that's the that's sort of the marginal place where uh, banks will enact their um, you know shifting shifting uh, uh, expectations. Great, thank you. I think that's a, a great place to close. Thank you to our speakers for joining us. Institutional clients can read more about these topics on JP Morgan Markets or reaching out directly with questions. Stay tuned for more episodes of, at any rate, JP Morgan's Global Research Podcast Series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan Research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase & Co. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June 2nd, 2023.